Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. The Robotics Science and Systems Conference is now accepting applications to the Inclusion at RSS program. Applications are due March 13, 2020. The RSS community is committed to increasing the participation of groups traditionally underrepresented in robotics, including, but not limited to, women, LGBTQ+, underrepresented minorities, and people with disabilities. Inclusion at RSS is a way to increase and sustain a broader participation in the robotics research community. This opportunity is especially for people early in their studies and career, and participants will receive travel support. You can find the application at roboticsconference.org under the Inclusion at RSS page. Again, Inclusion at RSS is now accepting applications until March 13, 2020. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Christoph Bartnick and I work for the University of Canterbury here in beautiful Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you first, what does first robot you build uh, and what is the feeling you had at this time? The first robot would have been Lego Mindstorms when it came out back in the 90s. And, uh, well, I'm a little bit obsessed with Lego, so I was happy not because it was a robot, but because it was also a very fantastic Lego set. So um, that was great fun. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you when you were a child, because there is a Japanese robotist called Mori, and he said that since I was a child, I have never liked looking at Wex figure. They somehow looked creepy to him. So when you were a child, have you ever heard about robotics and what does resonate to you? It's like creepy or interesting, if you remember. Not really. Um, we never really had exposure to robots when we were kids. Um, there were just none around other than, let's say, industrial robots. And also there was no wax figure museum anywhere around where I grew up. So I, I didn't really have that experience at all. Yeah. So if I ask you how you would define robot from your experience or your perspective, what is robot definition? Well, I have to admit I'm not a big fan of the uh, definition game, very simple because it's partly just semantics. So and people can argue for this uh, forever. Um, so uh, strictly speaking, I mean, I looked into the several definitions myself in, in my own past. And uh, yeah, if you've got something that has got sensors and has a microcontroller and has some actuators, strictly speaking, that would be a robot. But then a washing machine is a robot, right? So that's not really um, that kind of robot that I'm particularly interested in. Um, I'm more interested in robots that are designed to interact with humans. So this actually does exclude industrial robots or robots or actually any kind of machinery that's, that's supposed to work. 
So, uh, yeah, so a robot would pretty much any kind of machine these days because they all have microcontrollers, they all have sensors, they all have actuators. So, yeah, it doesn't quite work that way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So if I ask you, how do you see the progress of robotics in the last 10 years? Progress? Well... Well, the the big progress, of course, and its big application in the first place is, of course, industrial robots with robots being used in production. And that's an established business, and that's going, I guess, quite well. Um, and the field that I'm working in, in social robots, um, it's kind of an up and down. Uh, recently, we wrote a book uh, called uh, Human-Robot Interaction, and it will be published by Cambridge University Press in March. And in there, we actually listed and looked specifically for all sorts of social robots that have been developed. And when we created a timeline for them, it kind of was a bit depressing because most of them kind of stopped existing. And, uh, you know, they come up, you know, they run for a couple of years and then they go bust and then they're gone. So Jibo is an example where they did everything right. They got a very prestigious MIT professor to back it up. They've got lots of funding available for it, put millions of dollars to this project, had a reasonably good robot, really, and still it was commercially unsuccessful. Um, the only the only company that I know of that actually came back and survived was uh, Sony's Ibo. They actually managed to bring out a second version now of Ibo after a pause of several years. So commercially, I guess, uh, it's a bit difficult. So progress in that sense, commercially, we're not quite there yet. Is there progress in terms of research? Yeah, of course. I mean, we're we're working on this problem for so many years now, and, and things are getting better. But it's not necessarily the hardware that gets better, but it is the behaviors that we put into them where the real development takes place. Mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting point because you said it's commercially is not was not successful. I would like to ask you, what do you think the factors that make the which be successful or not? Since we have a gap between uh, what is what is the research done in academia and industry, so what do you think the factors to make it successful in in terms of commercial product? Well, if I would know this, I'll be a millionaire by now. Um, so uh, again, it's 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 always easy to look back in retrospect and say, "Aha, that was so silly to try to do that," and you know, and that's the reason why it failed. So looking at failures in the past is always easy, um, but it's much more difficult, of course, to predict the future, and that is actually something that's extremely difficult, and I would even argue almost impossible to predict. Um, the thing, I guess, when we look at Jibo, um, that specific uh, specific example. What we can observe is that they indeed did everything right, right? They got a beautiful design. Um, you know, it was kind of state of the art of a of a robot. Um, but at the same time where this came out, uh, other technologies came into play. So we suddenly, uh, suddenly had to start using Amazon's Alexa or Apple's Siri or all these other voice-based agents. And since this particular robot did not have any other function other than communicating with humans. Um, the question really comes up, okay, if I can talk to this robot, great, but I can also talk to my mobile phone, and I already have my mobile phone, and it's already with me, so why do I need to buy an extra robot to talk to it? So I guess that kind of made it a bit difficult. Um, and if you think about it, what makes a robot special in comparison to a screen-based agent 
is that it is physical, that it is in the world, that it can be touched, that it can touch, that it can move around, that it can manipulate the world. These are things that make a robot special. And unless you take advantage of it, um, there's no real point to it because otherwise you might as well have a virtual screen character on your phone um, because everybody already has a phone. But being in the physical world and operating in the physical world is just really, really difficult. Just the basic questions, where am I? Where are you? Where am I going? How do I get there? What do you want from me? How do I achieve this? Those are really, really difficult questions. And um, we're just not quite there yet. I mean, we got our little you know, floor-cleaning robots to work reasonably well by now. Um, but that is, of course, a very constrained application area. Um, and, of course, there's no particular intention to interact with humans there. Um, as a matter of fact, you want to operate when the humans are not there. So uh, in that sense, it's not really human-robot interaction. It's really more like human-away interaction. <laughs> so I guess one of the keys is to have really a clear benefit, a clear function of what the robot does at and value to the lives of people. What do you think the most important questions being considered yet? What do you think something missing in, in academia as a, as a research or maybe when looking to Rumba as example? What do you think missing here? What's the most important questions? Well, I have to admit that I'm extremely personally biased on this uh, since, of course, I've got my personal interests um, and, of course, I think that those are the most important things. Um, and I guess to some degree... What is really interesting for me, at least, is looking at um, robots in the way that it gives us an opportunity to reflect upon ourselves in terms of what does it mean to be a human and what does it mean to be a machine. And that is really, really existential almost. And by creating robots, we actually learn a lot about ourselves so if you are able to build a robot that is indistinguishable from a human, then that means you must have understood how humans work. So in that sense, it offers us the opportunity to synthesize our knowledge into an artifact that can then be tested. So that, I guess, is an overall research theme that I've been looking at. And this means not necessarily practical applications. So it's not about delivering, you know, or have a utility function in terms of, okay, clean my house, bring me a drink, you know, do the dishes, so forth. But it really is more about, um, uh, I guess, well, it's really existential. It's about what does it mean to be human? That's an interesting question. And I would like to ask you whether these abstractions, if we just speak, is like the brain, how like conscious and this, for example, or just the functionalities of the human body, how how you see it from it, uh, if you were reflected in a robot? Well, I guess that brings up a bit of a question here, and that is, uh, do you need to work like a human in order to be a human, right? So it's it's the black box versus um, actually being it. So do you need to have <clears throat> muscles that work like human muscles in order to work, to function? Or do you need to have neurons in order to think, right? Um, or can you actually just have a simulation of neurons or can you just really just be a computer? Um, 
And that question is, is, I guess, undecided. And I would even argue to some degree it almost doesn't matter um, because as long as it acts and behaves in a way as it would be similar to that of a human, it almost, I guess, doesn't really matter uh, how it does that in the background. I mean, that kind of, I guess, goes against my previous uh, statement about that we, you know, we learn about what it means to be human. So in that sense... Um, no, it might not be necessary to develop a complete artificial brain with all the neurons, neurons in a simulation in a computer to be able to understand the human brain. Maybe it does, but you could actually be much more efficient uh, and, and you might get away with much less um, by using just different forms of programming that are not based on modeling a human brain. But even then, um, the thing about humans is that as soon as you've got a robot that talks and that has roughly the shape of a human we are confronted with an entity that has intentional behavior, that has all sorts of actions that we only otherwise know from other humans and from animals. And so we're a bit of caught in the middle here where we rationally know this is a machine, this is a computer, but also we see like, well, look, it acts, it behaves, and it does all these things. So in that sense, we treat it as if it was... Uh, a social human being, but while exactly knowing it is not. And this kind of gap or this kind of tension, of course, makes it a little bit interesting. Um, once uh, we forget about that it is a computer, you know, when once we see it completely, oh, it's just another human and we don't really bother about that it is not, then of course this will disappear. Or the other way around, if it is completely, uh, it looks like a machine, acts like a machine, also then this tension doesn't really exist. So, yeah, this kind of field of tension, I guess, is sort of interesting. So concerning human and machine interactions, do you think her design strategy plays a role, like how design a robot like uh, resemble human being, or just how you think this is something you think interesting also uh, to be considered in designing? Well, the goal is not always to make humans most, sorry, to make robots most human-like. That's not necessarily the best way forward. It is an interesting direction. But what I see most important is to match the appearance with the robot with its abilities. So once the robot has eyes, once the robot has got ears, you kind of assume that it can talk and that it can listen and more importantly, it can understand. But unfortunately, the technology is not quite there yet, and therefore we very often are disappointed with the performance. So thereby, at this point in time, it is actually much more wise to follow in the, say, design strategy of Sony, and that is to build an animal, because speech recognition is not perfect, and that is just like a dog, because sometimes the dog listens and does what you want it to do, and sometimes it does not. And therefore, giving it the shape of a dog seems to be actually a pretty good thing to do and also your expectations of what a dog can do is is not as high as that of a human so in that sense then you're not so disappointed and you might be quite satisfied with its functions and and quite often yes sometimes of course you want to have deep philosophical you know discussions with other human beings about the world and everything but sometimes also we just be happy with just lower forms of sociability and robots can fill that gap already without being able to be a strong AI. That's also important point. So if I ask you for this limitation, what do you think we can consider in that scenario? Like where have to, we have to focus on 
Of course, when you have a dog, sometimes people say it's sad to see a robotic dog because what is the sense behind having a robotic dog? That's something also a question maybe pops in our mind. But what do you think this kind of limitation, we can address this limitation? How we can address them? If you think about the problem and limitation we have to reach a level that maybe resemble the dog in reality or human being, for example, yeah. Well, so I guess there are two questions uh, in there. One is that if you take the examples of emotions, right? Um, if, a ro if a robot is able to recognize the emotions of a human, if it is able to reason about it, if it is able to have uh, an internal emotional state uh, which describes its own emotional state, if it is then able to express its emotional state, um, well, is that not good enough for, or could you not argue then the robot actually has emotions? And then some people, some people would say like, yeah, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't actually experience it. And that becomes almost again like, well, how do you know that, right? So, I mean, I don't know what you feel, you as actually you, um, and we are kind of like kept in our own bodies. And so we are isolated from each other's anyway, and we cannot always know what the other is feeling. And therefore, you know, this question might not really be that important. In terms of um, getting getting there, well, I mean, AI is, is, I guess, to some degree, the bottleneck right now. And we are really, I mean, there's steady progress and well, we're getting there, but also at the same time, we've got this really big hope and this desire to have a machine that can think and that can think for us. And uh, it's been portrayed in science fiction so often, and uh, it's so it's so easy to explain. Like, just have a computer that just acts and thinks like like a human, you know, full stop, and then we're happy. But that's actually really, really hard because we don't even really know how people work and uh, understanding the world, reasoning about the world, making decisions. All of that is really, really difficult. It comes so natural, so easy to us, and therefore we assume it must be easy for everybody else. But it is not. And the way we, I guess, are confronted with this is when we are asked to specify these things in a programming language. Um, because then we are like, oh, wait a minute, this is really, really hard because it's really hard for us to really think in any kind of very structured, very logical way. It takes a lot of energy. Um, it's kind of a newer part of our brain and we cannot really be particularly proud of it this time. Um, so in that sense, um, it's just a really, really hard problem. We've got very high expectations. Um, and there's always uh, a big, or there has always been a big gap with what we want, uh, what people promise to get funding for, and then what actually really gets done. Very tricky point. I think also very important, especially in research. Um, and I think this really interesting one because do you think when we get funding, do you think we have to be like a product driven or just a technology driven? I would say neither. Um, so usually the way I divide it up is that you have people who are predominantly interested in solving problems. So you would like see uh, the world as it is and you think like, oh, you know, it could actually be better and you have a desired state that you want to get to. 
and then you build some sort of solution, very often a technology solution, and then you test it to see if actually if that actually improves the world. And if your test comes positive, then you are all happy and you think you've solved the problem. Uh, very often, though, we are confronted with problems where technology is not the solution at all. So. Uh, when you see robots being used for, let's say, companionship with the elderly, the question of whether it really solves the problem uh, is, is a difficult one because we maybe just replace one form of loneliness with another. Um, the other way then is to go about is to do start with a question, and that is then more done by scientists where you start with a question that is interesting and has not been answered yet, and then you derive a method to be able to answer that question. And if you then do the study and, and you got good data and you're able to answer the question, you're all happy. So the division is not about products and technology. It's really about... I would say, um, problem solving and um, creating knowledge. And they're still even independent. So they're not independent. They actually relate to each other. So quite often, to be able to solve a problem, you actually need to understand it. So in that sense, they are actually connected. Yeah, that's. A, I would like to stress in this point understanding because sometimes we have like a recipe that you follow something to do with our in robotics or AI and you don't have a deep understanding. How do you see this term is really ap um, applied to our research in general from your eyes? Do you see that we have a deep understanding for the problems? If you if you say it like the problems. Well, yeah. I mean, like, well. Understanding the problem usually means understanding the world, right? So, um, um, and again, these are interconnected. So, usually, you want to pro solve a problem that is relates somehow to this world. And if it's in robotics, it's of course very often in this world. So, like, how do I get from point A to B? You know, how do I not run to people? How do I pick up this glass of water without smashing it? Or, you know, there's, you know, it's all very, very much relatable projects uh, or problems to the real world. And of course, understanding the problem, you know, it's it's usually like once, again, once you start looking into things, things usually get more difficult. It, again, if you say it, it's so, in words, it's so simple, pick up the glass of water. You know, how difficult could it possibly be, right? And because it's so intuitive for us, because we are so well trained to do this. But then once you start trying to make a robot do it, and you have to really specify what does it really mean to pick up a glass. It means actually, first of all, know where the glass is. So you need to know what is a glass and how is a glass different from the environment? And how can I actually know where it is at all? And then how can I ha use my arm to get there? Actually, what is my arm? How, what's the structure of my arm? What, what can I do with my arm? And if I get, eventually get to the glass, you know, what, what then? H how do I actually lift it up? You know, and it, it actually gets really, really complicated once you start thinking about it. But again, that, that's just general engineering, I suppose. That's, that's always the kind of engineering that we have to deal with. That, you know, f a lot of things that seem quite intuitive and easy for humans uh, end up being extremely difficult once you start to actually really describe it and dissect it. At that point, we're getting into the uh, the problem of uh, the media. Um, so the media is a blessing and a curse at the same time. So um, it, let's say AI and robotics are topics that fascinated people for, for decades. And people have been writing about it. We've produced movies and uh, a lot of effort is spent in this direction. And uh, in a way, this is a good thing because, you know, because people are so interested in it, uh, we actually get funding for this. <laughs> if nobody was interested in it, then, you know, we would have a much harder time. 
but at the same time if you are if you are working in the in fiction and you can neglect you know all the practical problems and you can just describe how you think it would could be and should be um, that's great and, and these are great visions and they might even inspire us and give us directions but getting there is really really hard and uh, very very underestimated so and when we then for example do studies in human robot interaction and we invite people and most of the time they have never actually interacted with the robots so like the first time they actually see a real robot but they come to the robot with all this knowledge and all the movies they've seen and all the tv shows and they've got all these expectations and then well very often there's an adjustment period where they have to get to used to what this actual robot is and what it can actually do and so you've got a bit of a novelty effect in the beginning and a bit of kind of disillusionment um and getting over this hurdle usually takes yeah a bit of effort to actually then get to let's say more important data i mean it really makes a difference whether you interact with a robot just for 15 minutes and then you're done or whether you take the robot home and you have it in your home for let's say a month and it's roaming around for a whole month it just makes a huge difference mm-hmm. so if we speak about this point do you think uh, who is responsible of course media is maybe reporting but do you think there's other parties incorporating in this problem since you, we have to get funding so that we can make the robots that we still we don't ha- meet this expectation do you think there's other factors incorporating in this issue? Well, writing funding proposals is really writing fiction um, because um, you have to make promises and these promises need to sound interesting otherwise it doesn't get funded. Uh, If they are, of course, go too far out then, you know, it will be disregarded as being unrealistic. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's... There is a certain skill that academics have to develop to write fiction about their own work that still sounds plausible. Um, and of course, people are rarely kept to their promises. So once you receive the funding later on, you know, barely anybody ever checks whether what you've promised actually, you know, worked out. And of course, you shouldn't be because, <clears throat> you know, it is in the nature of science that you do not know what's going to happen. You do not know whether this will work. If you would know that it would work, it wouldn't be science anymore. So indeed, uh, we need this uncertainty. It's, it's in- inherent in what we do and how we do it. But it's, of course, quite a tragedy that when we interact with funders, um, why do we have to do that in the first place? Um, so why does, let's say, the government not trust us in deciding for ourselves what is an important research topic? In a way, academics are being treated like babies, like, oh, you can't give them any money because, you know, they would waste it and silly things and that would be wasteful and that we cannot allow that. It must be controlled. And that is really a misrepresentation about what academics do. And, 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 and we have an intrinsic interest in improving the world. We want to make this a better place. And we also have good ideas about how to do it. But we are squeezed into 
uh, a framework in which we, for example, continuously have to justify the benefit for society. So in New Zealand, for example, we used to have a ministry of science and that kind of was disestablished and it was merged with the ministry of everything, I call it, uh, which is the ministry of business, innovation, la-di-da. It has an incredibly long name. But as an effect, all funding available has to be tied to some form of industrial interest. So it always has to lead up to some sort of profit generation, improvement of economy. Everything is subdued to economic profit. And that leads then to us coming up with fantastic stories about how this will all work. (laughs) Again, these are just stories. And in a way, it inhibits us to do actual real work, the real underlying important work, because sometimes these things are much further in the future. These are more fundamental basic problems that we have to work on and that will not have any impact on the machinery that you're going to sell in the next year or the year after or even in five years. So this whole tension between, let's see, a societal need and funding and science is, is really problematic. I think this is a serious point because... Uh, if we speak about how the funding is, is is secured and also that's lead to competition as well and you have to publish and make sure that your research is just the best. And I don't know if, if you think about this issue, is this lack of understanding or maybe uh, the funders don't, doesn't really aware what you do about this, just the... Because at the end of the day you say that we want to make the wallet better as much as we can and, and also to, in the first place that you are curious about the problem and to be to do science but in this i don't know how to call it but it just make it like uh shocking or you know, like confiscating your abilities to do something you really passionate on if you see this how how, how this can be solved well there are some very easy things and that is um just give the researchers the money. <laughs> just just give it to them. Don't waste any time on running big processes and wasting all this time of administration. Don't waste time on, on all this uh, politics around it. Just just give it to the people and, and trust them that they will do right. And, and they will. I'm, I'm very much con- convinced that scientists will work uh, on this. And there's another view on it. It's, of course... Well, there's one constraint, and that is there's never really enough money for funding, right? So uh, all of us could easily cook up research programs that would consume millions of dollars. And if all of us do that, there's just probably not enough money that society can cover up for this. So in a way, the whole funding uh, competition is partly rooted in the problem of distribution, uh, a limited resource, um, and but then again, there's a, a variety of how you can go about it. So you could, for example, make it extreme. You could say winner takes it all, like all the funding goes to one person, you know, and that's it. Or you could distribute it uh, uh, equally to everybody. You take whatever money is available, and you just cut it by you know how many people you have, and then everybody gets the same thing. And then there are all kind of gradients in between. And um, it could be as simple as a lottery. 
uh, to solve that problem. And, and people have been argued that this is actually the mo- most effective and possibly the best way. Just do a lottery and you'll be done with it. And then, you know, it's fair, it's square, minimum overhead, and you use most of the money for actual research and not administrating it. But um, then again, you know, I guess politicians somehow think they need to be in control of this and they actually want to be in control of this because if they would just say, okay, you know, we we just give money to researchers, then they don't really get any media attention out of it. But if they have like, oh, Minister X is proposing a program on improving this and that, you know, then they get a lot of attention out of it. So it's it's really being abused in a way, uh, in that way as well. And sometimes it's just really... I sometimes really don't know how these things happen. So in New Zealand recently, there was the funding scheme that the government came up with, which was called uh, entrepreneurial universities. And the assumption was that New Zealand universities are not entrepreneurial. And to solve this problem, we need to get different types of people to the university. And these people, you know, most certainly cannot be in New Zealand. They must be abroad and they must come from the outside. So they set up this specific funding scheme to get people from the outside of New Zealand to New Zealand. And then, you know, they would make everything entrepreneurial. And there are so many assumptions in there which are just wrong. Like, why would you think that universities in New Zealand are not entrepreneurial? Why would you think that people who live in New Zealand are not entrepreneurial? These are just all really, really big assumptions. And of course, I mean, I'm grateful for the government giving money to you know, get more people to university. That's great. I know I love it. That's good. And and even I, I love inviting my international colleagues to come here. Great. Wonderful. But in some instances, you know, it just ends up being silly because sometimes they hire New Zealanders who are originally from New Zealand, you know, who just happen to live abroad to come back to New Zealand. So it, this whole thing doesn't really make sense. And whoever came up with this idea, I don't know how and why. I mean, again, I'm grateful for the money that they spend, and it's good that we get more people because that's important. But some of the underlying assumptions, I really don't know where they come from. So, that's, uh, I think, a struggle, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, I don't think we can answer this question because I think it's about the people who who really leading or make decisions. So, that's why that's the issue, I think. Um, so if I, I ask you back into intelligence or robotics, if how how you see intelligence or robotics? There's barely any. <laughs> well, first you would have to define what you mean with intelligence, and that of course is again uh, very very difficult. It's a moving target. At some point, we thought, oh, if a computer can play chess and can beat a grandmaster, then machines are intelligent. And then machines did it. And then they said, oh, no, 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 this is just brute force. You know, this is just calculating. This is not real intelligence. And they it's a moving target. So uh, one of my uh, uh, former PhD student, Martin Zerbeck, just once said, like, well, artificial intelligence is just whatever humans can't do. Oh, sorry, that was completely wrong. <laughs> no, my PhD student said that, uh, Martin said that uh, artificial intelligence is whatever computers can't do, of course. So that's the definition. And as soon as they can do it, it's no longer considered intelligence. So um, again, it's it's a bit difficult to really talk about. I mean, what a lot of people in the popular culture, at least, assume with intelligence is human-like intelligence. And that very often means coming back to the Turing test. So you know, being able to have a conversation uh, that is meaningful. And 
Um, well, again, there's progress. So speech recognition has improved. Not perfect, but has improved. Uh, we can ask questions about what the weather is, and we can ask questions about maybe a stock exchange or some factual things. Um, so there's some progress, undeniable. But again, it's our own expectations that we have that kind of become frustrated because we want it to be so much better. Can we build a machine that processes uh, emotions similar to that of humans? Yeah, most certainly we can. We can most certainly build a robot that can sense, process, and express emotions. Everything, no problem, has already been done. It's, that's, that's a done deal. The question is like, well, are these real emotions? Uh, but then it's really a philosophical question about representation because, well, what is real? You know, is it real that some of your neurons are in a certain state? You know, uh, again, I think we have a tendency there to just to take ourselves far too serious. We we think that you know because we have the sensation and it is so actually important for us. Emotions are really quite something that drive us. They 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 play an important part in our in our lives. Uh, this this pure experience and 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 quite frankly, sometimes it's very painful. We get very painful uh, emotions. So for us, this is really really important. The assumption is like, okay, if it is so important for us, then you know certainly this must also be important for 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 a machine. But I guess even more, see, we're running short in times of telling the exact difference what makes humans different from machines. Um, and and it's kind of like an in-group, out-group kind of situation where we have to somehow tell ourselves that we are special and we are superior. And if you have robots that are stronger, faster than you, if robots maybe even become, you know, and in a way they're already smarter than us. They can add numbers together, you know, much better than we can. So bit by bit, you know, machines and robots uh, scratch on our, you know, pride about what it means to be special and to be humans. And one of the things that we cling on to is just, oh, yeah, but whatever it is that you do, it's not real. Only humans have this, you know. But again, this might just be a form of helpless pride uh, because we can most certainly develop an emotional machine. There's no real questions about it. Well, so one of the things that's going to be very interesting in the upcoming years is autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, I, I originally thought that it would be um, autonomous killing machines would be the one thing that's really going to, you know, get us busy. But I guess it turns out that much more people get killed by cars than by than by weapons. Uh, thank God, I guess. Uh, well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> anyway, um, a lot of people die on the on the road, and um, if we can have reduced that, that would be great. But it will be a situation which would be quite unique to humans in the sense that you put your life into the hands of a machine and you hope for the best. And most certainly there will be deaths. It's unavoidable. You know, uh, the perfect driving robot, you know, is not there and possibly never will be. Um, and so we will just have to at some point accept a risk that the machine will kill us. And... Um, 
And then, of course, the machines have got abilities that go beyond that of ours, and then things get really tricky. So, for example, it's quite conceivable that, for example, uh, cars can easily sense how many people are in the car already right now with the seatbelt sensor, right? If you sit in your car, you don't put on your seat belt, your, your seat belt, it starts beeping telling you, you know, put on your seatbelt, put on your seatbelt. So the, the car knows exactly how many people are in the car. And cars also are now able to talk to each other, right? They can say, okay, uh, I've got four, four people are in my car. And, and let's say there's an, a crash imminent and there's a choice, you know, in that car, there's one person. In that car, there's four person. And there's actually a possibility to negotiate about, you know, well, who's going to, let's say, drive off the road and down to the cliff, you know. And the machines would be able to make this decision. Well, it's probably better we sacrifice one than four. Um, and you're the unlucky one to be in the car with the one. Then your car is going to kill you. Um, and in that particular scenario, Potentially, that's the best decision. Um, but nevertheless, being confronted to be in a decision-making system that has the potential to kill you is is something that I guess a lot of people will have to get used to. Um, that's uh, also important point because I, when we have as guests, some say that the the rate of uh, like car accident in in real life, what we have, is much higher than I mean, like self-driving car. But I don't know who is really contributing the idea that we can go now and trust self-driving car that recently developed by Tesla, for example. I don't know from your reading who's contributing to that, that make that, okay, we can go and try. Although we, it's just like we have a serious decision and significant decision by a machine. Well, I mean, the whole—it's again—it's it's a very interesting topic, let's say, at this point in time. Because on the one hand, again, we're getting there, right? Suddenly, cars can do things, right? And that's really amazing. It's really great progress. But then, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw a newspaper article where Tesla announced that their cars in autopilot can now detect traffic cones. And I thought to myself, how? What? Now, now you can detect traffic cones. You've been driving on the road for I don't know how many years now, and you didn't know what a traffic cone is. How did you survive? So, um, in that sense, we're not quite, we're not quite there yet because even now, the uh, autopilots only work in quite constrained environments, good weather, freeway. You know, there's a lot of constraints around right now. Also, the the, the human driver still has to be attentive. You know, you're supposed to be able to take back control immediately. So we're not quite really there yet with it, but we can see it on the horizon. And it is important that we start thinking about it. And of course, it's not just really developing the technology and making sure the technology is as good as possible so that we really can reduce the the amount of injuries and death on our road. I mean, that is just really already a great thing in itself. I mean, if you just take out, we're actually currently busy in it with a project where we're trying to look at and analyzing traffic accidents in New Zealand. And if you could just cut out alcohol, if you can just cut out speeding, if you can just cut out all these very obvious human errors that lead to tragedy, um, that would already be potentially quite worthwhile. Um, but then again, the 
autonomous cars will not be perfect at the beginning or maybe never will. So the question really is, what is an acceptable level of damage? What is an acceptable level of death that we would tolerate? And that is not necessarily a technical question. It really becomes a philosophical question and also then a philosophical question that lead to policy and then to law. So I, um, you know, Rob Sparrow speculated that at the point where we can prove that autonomous vehicles have a better driving performance than human drivers, and that does not mean perfect, it just means better, then we should actually ban human drivers. It should become illegal for humans to drive because that's the sensible thing to do. And then other, for example, um, um, other colleagues of mine then actually argued the opposite. They would say, look, you know, I know that, you know, humans might not be the best at driving, but you can't take the right of driving away from me in the same way that you cannot take away the right for me to consume unhealthy food or have the right to do it. I know it's not good, but I want to. So there's a lot of problems, really uh, ethical problems around it. And that requires, um, I guess, a good grounding in data so that we don't just make up facts and, you know, uh, talk about nothingness. You know, it should really be grounded in, in reality. But at the same time, we really, really need to have these conversations. We really need to talk to about it so that, you know, once these cars enter our road, we are ready for them. And uh, the way I see it right now, unfortunately, it is that a lot of uh, government organizations are quite reactive. So when it, they have their business as usual, and suddenly when a new feature comes onto the car and they have to approve it, and they're, oh, we have never seen this feature, now we have to deal with it. You know, they are usually quite reactive, and they probably spend a lot of time just optimizing status quo rather than really thinking uh, ahead in the future. So, for example, in New Zealand, we don't have any car industry. No car gets manufactured really in New Zealand. And so we will only ever bother with this once these cars are being imported to New Zealand, I guess. That's when we start thinking about it. I mean, at least, you know, potentially government officials. I mean, we, the researchers, of course, we want to be engaged in this dialogue. We want to contribute to the development. Uh, and that's going to happen on a global scale. So it doesn't really matter if you're in New Zealand or somewhere else, because once these cars will come, become available, they will be everywhere. Important point, because I think the most important thing is lay people who really don't involve it in this technology. And, and that's why they're affected by what is written and reported in media. So that's kind of trust, because I, 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 I just heard from two days ago that German artist was using, I think, 90 iPhones to make a, a, a fake or dummy traffic jam in Google Apps. I don't know if you hear about that. Oh yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty cute. And, and that's that's kind of trust. And and also here in New Zealand, you have now AI pol policeman. I, I don't know if you heard about this. Also, it was reported also that you can have AI uh, officer, police officer, for help. So this kind of tools that really engage invading our life. It, it is like a trusting issue as well because uh, you you highlight that any significant decisions shouldn't be done by machine or mustn't be done by machine. But now we have a trusting issue. It seems that there's certain people who have, like if we speak a lot, like we live in capitalism and there's certain people like uh, control how, how the, our life is shaping and it's changing our life. And that's why it's saying that sometimes we can't change the fact that it's become in our day life. And it's become the issue of trust. So how, how you read this 
is this issue about trusting technologies or app invading our life since we're living in capitalism world? Well, I mean, there's uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, was it last year? I went to a conference exactly about these topics, uh, about you know the ethics about artificial intelligence, and yeah, there's a lot of discussion about it. And um, some of the things, I guess, a lot of people will not even be aware of all the algorithms that are going on in the background. Um, I would argue that probably the most powerful weapon in the world right now is the Google search algorithm because it directs our attention. And um, um, that's very, um, yeah, difficult. I mean, there are, I guess, some approaches are explanatory AI. So if an AI system sort of makes a decision, it must be able to justify this decision in terms that humans can understand it. Because if you just look at a neural network and you just say, look at, it, look at it, it works, you know, but it is pretty meaningless to us. So um, that is one approach, I guess, uh, that people take that's uh, enabling AIs to justify their, their decision. And, and actually, as a matter of fact, I think it is in California, there is a law in place that if um, you have the right to be given an explanation about decisions from, and for example, if your credit uh, or your loan application was denied, you have got the right to ask why was it denied. And if this was done automatically through an algorithm, then they must tell you why. But then, of course, if they give you back some weird numbers that are meaningless to you, it still doesn't really help you, does it? So, um, yeah, it is uh, indeed uh, interesting times to live in, and um, um, and it's important that we remain critical and vigilant about this, and um, and be just quite aware of how how much certain algorithms are designed. I mean, if you just look at most of the social media, these things are designed to literally glue us to our screens, um, and they are designed to us maximizing the amount of time we spend on there so that they can throw advertising in our face so that they can earn money. I mean, that's the whole game. Um, and you just need to be really, really aware of that. Um, and I think a lot of people um, have fallen victim to this um, and neglect uh, real interaction uh, with real people for a kind of hybrid interaction between an algorithm and other people. True, yeah. So if I ask you what are the current challenges in your work you would like to highlight or you would like to do it in the next five years, challenges you really focus on in, in your research to tackle these issues? I, assume I, have my, I already talked about it that I'm quite interested in the ethics and the perception of trust and uh, in autonomous vehicles. I think that is going to be an important one because it really has the potential to do some real benefit but also some real harm to people and so I think that's going to be rather interesting um, other than that I mean um, there's just so much going on all at the same time it's, it's really hard to tell I mean I have to admit that I'm still quite fascinated by again this this one thing that makes robots special and that is being physical and that actually means that physical interaction is potentially one of the unique features of robots. So touching the robot and the robot touching you 
um, is, is very unique, very, very unique. And getting that right is difficult. And again, also potentially dangerous because, again, you know, the robot needs to be able to modulate its force and its speed and so forth. So it's not really easy to do. Um, but then again, it's a form of communication that is quite special also for humans. Um, so human touch is just really essential for, for human communication. And these days, I, I'm, I guess, sad to say that most people <clears throat> probably have more physical interaction with their phone than with their partner. Um, and that's really sad. <laughs> it's everywhere, yeah. So having said that about the human touch and how this is necessary, do you think that uh, human have to respect robots? Because even today when we didn't want fear and someone was hitting a robot to just to make it work. And it's, for, to be honest, for me, it sounds to me like offensive. Maybe I'm biased because I read an article that you have to be have to respect a robot, even though it just it doesn't feel a thing. But I don't know how how you see that. Like, of course, you see some videos, people kicking robots, and and it sounds to you that you you don't like that someone hitting a robot. Just resonates to you something sounds awful to you. Do you agree that we have to come up with human rights from robots and also? robots right is concerning human. Do you think that's something we have to consider? Yeah, we've done a lot of research in this area around people being uh, unpleasant towards robots, bullying, physical abuse, uh, verbal abuse, all sorts of things. And it is indeed, um, there's a, a bit of philosophy around it in the sense that the robots that we have at this point in time, they don't really have, um, well, the ones that we have, they didn't have an explicit built-in emotional system. They have no pain receptors. Um, they don't care if they're switched on or off. Um, they're really quite in a kind of zen kind of state, really. Um, so in that sense, you can't hurt them. You can't hurt their feelings. You know, if you break off the arm, they couldn't care less. So... From a robot's perspective, then, why, why would it matter? The robots don't care. So in that sense, uh, one could argue, like, it shouldn't really matter. Um, however, as uh, Rob Sparrow pointed out, uh, robots are not just a machine. Uh, they are also a form of a representation, and particularly when we talk about human-not robots. They represent a human being. And if you then do things to that, you do something to a representation. And that can be quite problematic. Um, so um, if, let's say, you have a humanoid robot, maybe even an android, and you are really nasty to it, that what does it say about you and your relationship to other people? Well, um, you know, you cannot really disentangle that completely. Um, the robot does represent a human. And if you do things to it, that matters. Well, humans barely do anything just for... Th I mean, we don't really do things 
necessarily to do harm. I mean, usually we do things. We even build weapons with good intentions. Um, but so in that sense, I don't really think we have to worry too much about it. I mean, we, we are constantly uh, interested in improving the world. So I do have quite a bit of um, trust into my fellow researchers that they have a shared interest in the benefit of our species. Um, so I don't think really that is too much of a problem. Um, I guess uh, the problems that we are confronted with are not necessarily technology problems. Uh, the things that we are confronted with are problems in our society and and humans, essentially. The problem really are humans. So how do we distribute our wealth? How do we treat our environment? Um, how do we deal with each other? Um, how do we respect each other and uh, are kind to each other? You know, these are really the dangers and the problems that we are facing at this point in time. And the solution very often is not technology, it is people. And yeah, of course, technology can play an important role, like if we find a better way of producing electricity that doesn't you know, pollute our world, yeah, there's technology solution to it in a way. Sure, I get that. Um, but for certain things, um, uh, there's, there's no real... The, the problem is not with the machines. It is really the, the, the problems are with the people. Innovation. Hmm. Well, so innovation is a really tricky business, and a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about it and uh, trying to, you know, uh, even predict it. Uh, and uh, I would argue that this is quite impossible, um, inherently impossible, because if you can predict it, then it is not innovation, because you knew it already, so there's no point to it. So there's this inherent uncertainty and not knowing that is present in research and in science. And we are, are working on this borderline between what is known and what is not known. And we need to explore, we need to try out, and a lot of these things we try don't work. Um, that's just the nature of it. And there's a hundred ways of how you can prevent or inhibit you know, people making progress. Um, and we know much less about how to set up a system in which it does actually work. And and very often the limiting factor right now is simply money. So the amount of research funding that is available for us to do our job is just... If you just look at the, let's say acceptance rate of, you know, how many research proposals get submitted and how many get funded, you know, this has been dropped below 10%. So really, that is the limiting factor. How much is society willing to invest into uh, doing research, in doing science? And um, we can only make ourselves available and, and you know, and, and, and uh, promote our ideas and uh, and try to convince society that uh, that we've got, you know, that we can benefit and uh, that we can all benefit from this. Um, and we, uh, but then again, you know, uh, 
these are value judgments. You know, what is important in society? You know, is it more important to do this or to do that? It's uh, it's sometimes very tricky, and, and I don't argue that. I wouldn't argue that the scientists necessarily know everything, and that we know exactly what is the best way forward, and we know exactly how to spend the money. And if we spend all of our money on research, then everything will be fine. No, it's not. You know, probably we will do mistakes and we get things wrong as well. So I guess indeed the limiting factor right now would predominantly be um, give us the resources to do our job, and that when and then we do innovate, we do good things, and we do new things. That's great. So. How we can make sure that while we enhancing the robotics and AI algorithm that invade our life, this will not lead to certain quality. Because as we highlighted, all the companies is like is, is based in the capitalism system. So we have these advances technology, robotics and AI algorithms. How we can make sure there's no social inequality would happen? Do you agree with this statement? Well, I would argue that it is already happening. I mean, there's already so much decision-making being done through computer algorithms and that we are not aware of because they go on in the background. And um, I guess really the only way is thoroughly testing and validating this. So whenever you implement uh, an algorithm, you need to do a very careful evaluation of its impact and you thoroughly need to test this. Um, and I don't really think that is happening. I mean, the people who are using these algorithms, they don't even know if the algorithms are discriminating anybody. It's just completely unknown. They just take it at face value. Like, oh, look, this machine or this computer or this program does a certain decision. And yeah, okay, well, it doesn't look too bad. Let's just go with it. So I guess right now the biggest problem there is our complete ignorance. We don't often even know what impact a certain algorithm has on society. And we really need to investigate, and it has to be transparent. So uh, transparent, explainable, verifiable, those are qualities that we need to look at when we introduce intelligent algorithms into our lives. Do you have any robots at your home? I do, I do, yes. I have a proud collection of Lego Mindstorm robots. Hundred years. What is the thing you wish humanity can do? Mm. <laughs> well, uh, I guess one of the first things would be to be at peace with itself. Uh, I think there's no particular benefit in violent conflict. Um, so that's something for us to come to peace with each other is, I guess, a really important thing. And it's difficult and it's hard and um, we really definitely have to work on a lot of resolving problems around inequality. Uh, That's a major obstacle. And the last one, of course, is the way we're going right now, uh, there's a pretty good chance that we make ourselves redundant from this planet. And um, uh, the planet doesn't need us, but we need this planet. And life will go on perfectly without us, but, you know, we will just make our lives really uncomfortable and even deadly to ourselves and the way we're going. So I, but then again, these are big goals. These are like really 100-year goals. And, and it's probably a bit more intelligent to talk about things that we can do now. So I would really like to encourage everybody who's listening, use your bikes, don't use your car. Use your bike, it's much better. An ego, 
Well, do you know how a scientist kill themselves? How? Climb up on top of their ego and then jump off. We didn't take it like a positive aspect of ego. It's just only negative side. Well, <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke, by the way. Um, you're supposed to be laughing there, and at least a giggle or something, but... I'll go for it. <laughs> um, um, uh, well, the... Um, well, as a scientist, you need to be quite resilient because you exp you confront yourself with uncertainty and unknown things. And uncertainty and unknown things is just something that humans feel very uncomfortable with. And so exposing yourself to this, doing things where you don't know what you're doing and still doing it um, is uh, you need quite a bit of confidence in yourself um, and feel okay with failing. Um, and so an ego is quite helpful uh, at that point. Um, but of course, there it's useful. But if you do science for the purpose of being a pop star or you know, being famous, then your ego can get quite in the way because then you pursue science for the wrong reasons. And if you pursue it for the wrong reasons, you walk in the wrong direction. But sometimes it's tricky. It's like maybe shady area or delusional for the person because sometimes you want to do something you want to be you know, passionate about or to find your call or purpose. And sometimes you don't know if it's ego or not. Do you think that's true or not? Again, it's inherent in what we do. We don't know what we're doing. That's 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 what we that's that's it. And you could say, you know, we're paranoid or crazy. Maybe, but maybe that is exactly what we need. So the point is, you can't predict it, and so you need to do things which are unknown and that could potentially be perceived as being completely crazy. But that's the nature of it. If you only do things that make perfect sense and that are perfectly predictable, then you're not doing science. So if a student wants to join your lab, what are the main qualities you're looking for as a student? I guess the first one is curiosity. Um, that's really, really important. Um, Intrinsic motivation is important, so they need to uh, be able to, you know, do their work and progress out of their own steam, out of their own interest. They must be driven, ideally, by their own curiosity. That's kind of the ideal. Um, other than that, well, it usually helps to be organized. So, um, but this is more of a mythological thing. So, um, you need to get your act together, and you need to be able to organize your life and your work in a way that you can actually complete work. Um, yeah, those are, I guess, the more fundamental things. And other things are just um, organizational or, uh, let's say, uh, practical things. But. Um, they don't really matter. Um, the real thing is to have a drive, a passion, and curiosity. What is the most inspiring book have you ever read? Ooh. That would be a little book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persick. And what the best advice was given to you and was life changing? 
I guess that would have been for my colleague Hu Jun. Um, we had a discussion about society, and uh, me with my Western mindset was always arguing about fairness and how society we should be all equal and you know everything should be fair. <clears throat> and he argued that look, no, actually, you know, in particular in Chinese, uh, in Chinese culture, the relationships are considered unequal. All of society consists out of unequal relationships, and I thought that was a very interesting observation. And uh, and I had to adjust my worldview to that because while we might strive towards equality and fairness, the way it is right now, it isn't. And it's much better to accept that and learn to deal with it than than anything else. That's great. So we are coming to the end. I would like to ask if you have any final words to the robotic community. Well, keep on building, keep on enjoying, and do some good work. Great. So at the end of the podcast, uh, and behalf of IEEE Soft Robotics DC, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs>